Thank you so much for stopping by. The pod team is currently on a much-needed vacation between Season 2 and Season 3 of the podcast. We'll be back in August with brand new episodes. But until then, we've got a re-release of one of our favorite episodes from the past season. This episode features a fun and informative conversation with Adachoma Ezano of the University of Kentucky. I hope you enjoy it and the rest of your summer. Until next time, you can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply to MFAWriters.com. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Adachoma Izano. Adachoma is a 2021 O. Henry Prize recipient. She is a second-year fiction candidate in the MFA program at the University of Kentucky, and she is an alum of Purple Hibiscus Workshop. Her fiction appears or is forthcoming in McSweeney's Quarterly, Flashback Fiction, Izele Magazine, Best Small Fictions 2020, and The Best Short Stories 2021. She is Igbo from Nigeria and worked with First Bank Nigeria before moving to Kentucky for the MFA program. Today, she is going to read an excerpt from a piece titled The Banker Girl. The Banker Girl. Nobody knew what happened, except she died like rats. But before this, Adaku knew she was the most blessed person on earth. She's got a doting man, a man who was left for her by the way by her friend, Chineye. A man who had seen her from the very first day and liked her, a likeness made possible by pity, a nuanced pity that pushed him into submitting her name for immediate employment. A man who had all that power. That was not all, because after the name submission, Chinenye and Adako held hands, engaged in head-bobbing prayers. Adako got the job. And Adako moved into a beautiful home on the outskirts of Omicha, in a three-bedroom flat. The house costing more than her father's house. The living room with its crystal chandelier, the plants and sparkly towels, mirrors nailed to the doors, the vanity glistening. And Adako would look at these Imagine Instagram likes. The day Chinea came to check her house, she was amazed, full of joy, bubbling, dance holding her big belly. She called Adako the banker girl, rubbed her big belly as she talked to her unborn child, said, here is a godmother winning this lavish independence, said, here is a godmother in whom we are well pleased. Adako loved it, this sense of lavishing independence. It was what she craved for as a child. She also wanted a white man. The porn videos she watched in hooded spaces, Jeanette looking over her head, listening for the tiniest scuffle, stuck with her. 
Chineye is dead now. And it pained Adako that Chineye died without forgiving her. Adako had slept with Chineye's husband more than once. The first time, they were drunk. It was after their bank's Thanksgiving party. Both of them segwaying from looking forward to Chineye's baby to looking at each other's nakedness. They peeled the clothes in Adako's house. The husband drove them there, left Adako's car at the party, and drove to Adako's husband, jumping potholes like a mad person, just the same demonic way he drove his penis into her, in slow circles at first, and then, as if his body caught a sudden fire, rammed into her, held her head, pinned it to the bed, while ramming into her. Adako had hot tears when we finished, wasn't sure why, just as she wasn't sure how. But Chineya found out. She called, asking, is it true? Adako, is it true? Chineya didn't agree with us an accident. Passionately said, no, 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 not you too, Adako. No. The same way she had said no when they were teens, when they had argued that every deed got a resulting consequence, and also when they had argued that the sexual performances between biracial couples appealed more, the black and the white, that everything appeared more colorful in binaries, everything except gender roles. And these two, Chineya didn't agree with or challenge gender roles and her husband's philandry. It was one of the many things that pained Adako that Chineya died without fighting the husband, died without being on good terms with her, died doing what was expected of her without upsetting tradition, busy performing tradition. Chineya died in August last year while giving birth. They said the husband had a choice, the mother or the baby, which didn't even matter because the baby followed the mother two months after. That was great. Thank you so much for reading that. And thanks for being here to talk to me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to talk to you about your writing and about your experience, both as an MFA student and as a recipient of an O. Henry Prize which is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. It's amazing. Um, but first, I want to talk to you about your writing process. So the, the excerpt you read today is from a story called The Banker Girl. And I know you worked for First Bank of Nigeria before you started the MFA. So in general, would you say that your stories usually begin with something from your own personal experience? So in this story, for instance, did you know from the start that you wanted to write about your experience as a banker? Basically, the very key thing that is personal between me and my characters, especially the main characters, at least, that we're all women, <laughs> Right. That's just yeah. the most personal thing about me and my characters, my main characters, at least. Um, I mean, for the stories I have written so far, starting with Banker Girl, of course, yes, you are right. I worked in a bank. I worked in First Bank. I headed the customer service unit in a small branch, just like the character on the outskirts of Onitra. And for mo many months, it was usual, nothing spectacular, nothing, you know, just usual come to the bank, do this, move capitalism a notch higher, you know, until one day, just like in the banker girl, 
A woman comes insisting I do a very non-capitalist thing, which is something ordinarily I would have done as a kind person <laughs> that I am, right? Give an old woman a chance to freely withdraw her own money for Christ's sake. She was, woman was, she was requesting for a debit card. Now, in Nigerian banks, in many Nigerian banks, debit cards are for sale, unlike here in the States. I mean, I know the banks here have advanced means of filling up their capitalist tank. That is not the way it is in Nigeria when it comes to debit card. Debit cards, debit cards are for sale. And uh, not only debit cards are for, are for sale, their active usage is usually also part of a retail banker's key performance index. So you pick, you buy a debit card, the, the, the retail customer, the customer service person is supposed to always monitor the usage of the debit card. Are you using it? Are you buying things with it? And it is also part of the, 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 the staff's KPI, right? So that particular day, I, I wasn't going to give the lady the withdrawal slip for free. I wanted her to buy the debit card because it would help my scorecard, right? I needed to get promoted as well. <laughs> So I was keeping the law. Now, this woman, she did this very obnoxious thing. She started making this very snaky dance right in the banking hall, murmuring some sort of incantation. I was curious and alarmed and scared. But then beyond all of that, I saw the desperation in her eyes, a sort of pitiable plea that was disguised by ego and spiritualism. So, of course, I have to save my head. I gave her what she wanted, right? What if I didn't give her the debit card? What could have happened? Could she have killed me, thwarted my realities, bent things in a bad way for me? What could she really have done? So that was where uh, the banker girl came from. That questioning, that, you know, asking myself what could have gone wrong if I didn't, you know, listen to myself and giving out this to draw out sleep for free. That is an amazing story. I love that so much. So you, it was like based partially on this actual experience that you had. And then I love that you got to a point and said, oh, well, what if I did this thing differently? So is that... That's so cool because this story goes in some pretty wild and interesting directions. I mean, I really love it. And I think anyone listening should go next month. It's coming out in Izele magazine. Go read it. The whole thing. It's awesome. And so I'm wondering. So I guess that's like where the real writing starts, right? You have this thing that actually happened, but then you sit down and you just let yourself go wild and imagine like, what if? Exactly. What does your process look like after that? Um, okay, so after I get the idea and I want to write, the first thing I do is to light red candles. <laughs> then I put on red lipstick and I dance around my desk seven times. <laughs> and I call on the girl of literature. I say, come, come, come. Anyway, okay, seriously, right? Of course, it starts with the seed. But I, I, I get to ask myself, what kind of seed is this? Is it something I can water by myself? For example, yeah. in Banker Girl, I didn't need research. It was something I had, ex I experienced somehow, even though not to the full, you know, plot of the story, but I had an experience, a partial experience. But what if I didn't? What if it's something entirely different? For example, I 
moved to the States in uh, January last year, right? And um, sometimes, as a human being, I worry that maybe uh, Americans, Native Americans, white Americans, anybody here might not be able to get my non-American accent, right? Mm. So I had this conversation with my one of my one of a very very close friend of mine. So she said to me, "Tell yourself you're a white girl, <laughs> right?" So I was like, "What?" <laughs> I mean, sort of. It was kind, sort of kind advice. But then I got home that day and I, I was thinking about it. Again, the seed came up. What if, what if I had DID, you know, um, disassociative identity disorder, and maybe a dead white girl takes over my body, right? And yes, I guess the uh, American accent, but then what happens after, afterwards? So that's the story I'm working on right now. But, but because I have no idea of how DID works and what happens, I have to call my therapist, I have to start making research. So what's my point? Most times it depends on what I'm working with, the idea I am working with, right? I do the research, do the reading, and then read good stories with good languages, good language, read good poems, read anything beautiful, then I start. And, you know, before the interview, you told me that you love experimenting with your writing, but you don't want to be labeled as an experimental writer. Why are you hesitant to have that label experimental writer? Um, so, so we see experimental writing is the writing that does not follow conventional rules. And this is when one should question the concept of conventional rules. What really do we mean by conventional rules? Like, break it down, brother, right? So <laughs> right. whose conventional rules are we to follow? Whose canon? The Western canon? I am African. I'm Nigerian. I'm a full-fledged evil woman. My go-to storytelling tradition is oral literature. So in, if, you're going to, if you're going to go by that rule, everything written is an experimental story. Because what I know, what I grew up with was and still is oral literature. Now, someone, someone might argue that we, what about playing with language? Now, in my short story, the one selected for the O. Henry Prize, Becoming the Baby Girl, I told a short story about uh, these pretty girls humping men for material comforts. I didn't say, okay, now I'm going to do experimental writing, right? I wrote English the way English comes to me. This beautiful, non-conforming conforming language full of syntax and sequence, yet arrogantly unaware of each syntax and sequence because it's clashing with my mother tongue. It's opening the doors, my mother tongue, Igbo, aspiringly marinating with my mother tongue, right? It's just like a well-cooked white yam dipped in, a, in red oil. So it's a question of power. A visceral dive in classism and, and colonialism. Who has more power? Whose story are we telling? Whose story are we reading? Whose story should we be telling? And according to what style? Writing shouldn't be about who has more power. It should be about, the, it shouldn't be anything about dominating tradition. It should be about writing. Writing is writing. Experimental stories are so named because of their revolting attempts to defy the dominating tradition. And only thing that this brings about is polarity in writing. That's it's, it's, it shouldn't be acceptable. Writing is writing, experimental, tradition, conventional, anything. Writing is writing. So we talked a bit about pulling from 
uh, or lived experience when writing fiction. So what was your early writing and reading life like in Nigeria? Were you writing at a young age? Well, writing, no, but I was reading. I was an early read. I was a boring child. <laughs> <laughs> I was boring. I was bored. I was because um, I broke our TV, our television as a child. So my father vehemently refused to replace it. Sometimes on Sundays, around 2 p.m., he would tell us stories about these talking donkeys, about, you know, things, folktales, African folktales. They were nice, actually. And then again, he bought us novels. Me and my, my sister and myself and my brothers, right? So I read Florent Wapba, Solonge Leta, Sipra Ngekwensi, Eze Goes to School, Chukwe Mekaike, Ediro. So many, so many Nigerian writers, young writers as a younger person, right? So I was, I was more of an early reader than I was of a writer. But I was telling stories though. The days that we were bored or we don't have anything to do, I'll gather my younger ones and we'll just tell stories. Then I read the Bible. I read Song of Solomon. I read King of Kings. I mean, there are really good stories in there. And so, like, while you were working in the bank, I'm curious, were you doing a lot of reading? Were you doing a lot of writing? Like, trying to still t- stay in touch with that creative side while you were working at of the course, bank? Of course, yes. It, it, I mean, banking is a very boring job, again. It's basically do as do as you've been told. You know, follow the rules. Just do it. You have to get it right. There is nothing like creativity. It's just you doing just as the person ahead of you your supervisor, the way he has said it, you know. So, yeah, I would get back home. I'll read my novels, my anything that I want to read, right? So, yeah, that's it. And then again, I had enough money to... So even what I was writing, and my writing wasn't going well, I had enough money to go online and order whatever I wanted to order, right? Because it's either I'm reading or I'm shopping. Shopping makes me so happy, right? I like buying new things and I also love reading. So when the writing isn't going well, I have to go to the alternative joy, which is buying things, right? So for right now, it's not, it's not happening. So people go from rags to riches. I am going from riches to rags, right? <laughs> the things you do for the things you love. So what made you decide that you wanted to pursue the MFA? I was in the bank. I was bald. It wasn't... I, Basically, I wasn't getting what I wanted out of life, right? And I wanted to just do this writing thing, get it right. And I had applied to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Top Library Schools workshop and got in and went for the workshop. And it was fun and nice. And I was like, you know what? It was there. She called my writing fearless. And it was, yeah, yeah. It had this sensation in my stomach. It was beautiful. So I was like, you know what? Let's go for this. And so, you know, how best do you train a love child if not by pruning out the flaws? MFA is where you come for it, right? So I came for the pruning, the pummeling, the learning, the crafts, the carving, the everything. So here I am, MFA, here we come. Well, I want to talk about Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie because, as you mentioned, you, you attended her workshop, right? The Purple Hibiscus Workshop. Most people know Adichie. She's an amazingly talented, inspiring writer. She's also from Nigeria. And she selected your story, Becoming the Baby Girl, for an O. Henry Prize this year. And that story was originally published in McSweeney's. I read it. It's amazing. It's really, really amazing. 
And there's even a b- brief mention of purple hibiscus in that story, which was Adichie's first novel, right? Was there? So, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> what did it mean to you to not only win that prize, but to be selected by Adichie? Um, it was a gift. My glass sandals, a glorious validation. Chimamanda is a, is a big deal. And um, to have that pat my back like that, it's, it's such a beautiful feel, right? Because it's, it's I mean, it's, it's just like the sweet fruits in a leafy tree, to be honest. Because here is a writer whose writing gives so many Nigerian writers the permission to write their realities into pages of possibilities. Sometimes you need to paint yourself to be certain you are there. Other times you need to, you need others to do it for you, right? After Chino Achebe, Chimamanda pinched Nigerian literature into a second glow. And to have her pat my back like that, that was beautiful. I, I really, I honestly, I, I can't imagine what that feeling must have been like. I mean, did you just like celebrate for like a week straight? Of course I did. A week, a month. I called everybody, <laughs> my enemies, my friends. I said, you see, we're no longer mates. <laughs> of course, I'm joking. But yes, it was, it was huge. It was beautiful. But the thing is, the story is amazing. It is so well-deserved that you won that prize. And I'm so happy for you. And so... Let's talk a little bit about the University of Kentucky and the MFA program. So it's a two-year program with tracks in fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction. The website says the program is very flexible and interdisciplinary in scope, combining a curriculum of studio and research with an emphasis on fostering the student's artistic process, literary study, and related creative work. Now, we'll talk about that stuff, but first... Going off of our previous question and answer, I have to talk about your professor, Crystal Wilkinson, who also won an O'Henry Prize this year. Did you all get to celebrate together? Yes, we did. We, we, I mean, there is COVID, so we couldn't hug. Yeah. Yeah, so sadly. But yes, it's, it's a gorgeous coincidence, right? And to be yeah. selected by a woman we both love, it's sort of an eisen. It is also humbling for me because I love and respect Crystal. She is such a brilliant woman, an intense writer, in whose writing I believe in wholesomely. Her writing drums and echoes, you know, and to be sharing such a stunning wing with her. It's quite staggering for me. It was and it still is. I... A couple of years ago, I saw Crystal Wilkinson speak at a literary event in Columbia, Missouri called the Unbound Book Festival. And I just thought she was amazing. The way she talked about Appalachia and her writing is just really beautiful. It was really inspiring. And you told me that one of the most important aspects of the program for you is the fact that your classes are led by strong women like Crystal Wilkinson. So how important has that been to your experience and your development as a writer? Yeah, like I said, my faculty is studied by, like, inundated by strong women, women who use their voices to speak needs into being, from Professor Crystal Wilkinson, Professor Damaris Hill, Hannah Peter, Julia Johnson, so many of them, right? So it's, it's such a needful thing because men would only show you the world 
but would never tell you the color of the world because they may not even know the color of the world, right? For women, it will take a woman, a strong woman at that, to take you beyond the world, to show you the paths you should take and the ones you should avoid, right? You know, a woman that have conquered prejudices will be able to point out, point that to you. It's, it's not enough to point out the stream for a child, but the, the child needs a direction to the stream, a clear map. That is what a strong woman will do for you. It is not enough to sit in the class and take the workshop. But what do you do with the learning, the craft you've learned? The, the, how do you craft that into your writing? How do you follow your character's trajectories, basically? Thinking about the things you've experienced in the classroom. Staying with Crystal Wilkinson, there's some debate in the MFA world around the traditional workshop model and whether the practice of silencing writers should be changed. And, and there are some great professors out there who are coming up with their own models, like Felicia Rose Chavez, who we had on the show a while back here. And it sounds like Professor Wilkinson is one of those people who is trying to change the status quo. So can you tell us how she runs her workshops? Actually, yeah. Um, what she does is this. She gives every writer in my class the choice to choose the mainstream workshop or the traditional workshop, like he called it, or to use what she called wild card musings, wild card critique musings, right? Now, apart from the gag order, basically, we ask questions. And if the readers, now by readers, I mean, you know, workshop um, students, if we are um, asking the writer questions, of course, you, you can't be gagged. You have to answer the questions. So that cancels the, the gag order, right? So yeah, in wild card critique musings, um, the goal, of course, is to perfect the work, right? So to do this, we find out that what the, we find out what the writer wants to do by posing questions to the writer. So instead of suggesting, we question, we ask why. I mean, literature is not a cult, right? So we, as writers, we are creating because primarily we don't conform. Never mind that we have very funny. Um, um, modern, modern, um, lexicon, kill the darlings, kill the adverbs, kill the cliche, but that's by the way. You're looking for sensory details. We analyze the story in terms of sight, touch, feel, the oral, the olfactory. Most times, the bid to write and capture the physicality of the character, the interiority of the character, we tend to forget as writers the, the sense of smell, how important it is. It's normal. In the workshop, we help you find this out. Because as a reader, I want to know. I want to know how that room smells like, the aroma of the food. I want to know everything. We also do a detailed scene analysis. Crystal sees to it that we isolate the scenes in the story one after the other. We follow how the writer opens the scenes, how the writer allows something to happen, and then how the writer closes every scene. Afterward, we, we question the dramatic weight of the scene. Is it too hyperbolic? Unnecessarily overblown? Does it need more parchment? Why is it important that character A is running and not walking? You get? So, so there should always be a sense of balance and control. You ask how the tension is working. You can see the tension in the language, in the body of the story, with the weather, with flashback, 
with foreshadows everything. So you ask and you ask and you ask until the writer is certain that the decision they are making is the right decision for that story. Keyword, we don't suggest. We're not like, why not make this writer work? We are asking, why are you making this writer wrong? That's all. Yeah, so it's really about engaging the writer with their own process and getting them to talk through the decisions that they've made. I think that's wonderful. And so having having experienced the quote-unquote traditional model of a workshop and Crystal Wilkinson's model, what do you think the um, pluses and minuses are for the two? Like, what what are the benefits of this model that Wilkinson's doing? Okay, I'm going to give you a life example. So there was a workshop I attended when I was back home in Nigeria. And I wrote this story about this woman that um, she has a schizophrenia. But I didn't name what she had. Because in Nigeria, the average Nigerian doesn't have an doesn't a you know have any opportunity to look out for a therapist. The best thing or the best way they sort out their issues is basically most times through the church. They go to the pastor, they go to the native doctor, they go they just find a way to make things work because that is what they can afford. That is what they believe in. So the woman in my story, I can't come and be like, okay, she went to a therapist, because that's not true. That's a lie, right? So I brought this story up for workshopping, and everybody was saying, because, of course, she went to a, a native doctor, and because it's an African story, it, they just assumed that I was writing about a woman that is uh, doing voodoo. My story had nothing to do with voodoo. And they were workshopping me based on that. You cannot effectively workshop a story if you do not know what the story is saying. Do you understand? I mean, yeah, you might be like, okay, maybe you didn't you did write it well, but it wasn't a question of you write, you not writing it well because every Nigerian that read the story understood where I was going to. Do you get? But my white audience didn't. Do you understand? So, so that was where you could have asked the, 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 the writer what's going on here. And you know, you might also be like, okay, what if it's a published story? Are you going to be in their houses and tell them what is going on? But don't forget, most times, published stories have blobs. Do you get? So you can have the editor write something on top. So that can guide you as a reader what is going on in the story. But there was no blob. And of course, there was a gag order. And I couldn't give them the blob of the story. Right? I couldn't give them the summary of the story. I couldn't, I couldn't give them anything about the story. Basically. So they just went there, wasted almost one hour of my time. And it kept going on and on and on, you know. And by the time we finished, nothing was achieved because that wasn't my story they were talking about. And that's the that's the drawback of the gag order, right? If you can ask questions, why is this writer doing this and not doing that? I can tell you what I wanted to do. And then, because it's a story we are workshopping, you cannot give me your advice. This is what I think you should have done that will make this clearer, that will make what you are thinking to do clearer. Do you understand? But if I keep quiet and you go all, all about on my story without knowing what I was trying to do, you see, it's, 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 it's a waste of time. I mean, story, workshop is not, it's not a court of law where I have been, where the writer has been brought to be killed. It's a place where I'm coming for you to help me work on my story. 
So if you are going to help me work on my story, then help me work on my story. How do you help me? You find out what I wanted to do. And only then, if you know what I wanted to do, would you now know what to tell me to do to make my ideas come out clearer? So half of the classes you take at the University of Kentucky are workshops, like the ones you've been talking about. And the other half consists of craft classes, English classes, and electives. So what have been some of your favorite classes outside of the workshop? Um, of course, digital class. So it's a craft class, digital st- storytelling craft, which is more like saying writing or literature. I mean, yeah, writing in the time of TikTok. So what happens? People are not really picking up books to read. We are not reading Sally Rooney. We are not reading Damaris Hill. We are not reading Crystal. So how do we make these people readers, actually? How do we make more readers? We can use, um, you know, digital writing, digital, you know. And it's, it's, it's a class that, was, that is also um, facilitated by Professor Hill, that's Damaris Hill, which is um, her teaching pedagogies perfect. So it's, it's a beautiful class. I love it. And according to the website, there are also those elective credits. And apparently you can do like internships to fill those elective credits. Um, there are opportunities to edit at New Limestone Review, which is UK's literary magazine. And then apparently you can also work as an intern for the Visiting Writer Series. So can you tell us anything about those kinds of opportunities? Uh, yeah, there is that. But I'm not taking them. So I really don't know. <laughs> What about the Visiting Writers series in general? Have you gotten a chance to see some writers who have come to campus? Yeah, last last semester, uh, we had the Lee Young Lee. Um, we also had the Madeline Fitch. This um, semester, we're having a Keith Wilson, and we have a Nicole Chung of Catapult Magazine. So the program also hosts, I must say this, also hosts a writer in residence, I mean, I mean plus the visiting writing series, there is this summer reading opportunities for summer writing residencies at cabins in Tennessee and Virginia, right? And it's open for current and graduated students. And so when those writers come to campus to visit, do you get to work with them at all or speak to them at all? So yes, yes. Um, there's craft talk, there's reading, there is, um, you can also, if you like them to workshop your story, you can, yeah, you can also send out the stories to them have one-on-one conversations with them. That is, it's entirely up to the writer. So according to the program's website, they offer eight fully funded teaching assistantships, which the best I can tell, the program only has about eight students each year. So is everyone in the program funded? Yes, yes, everyone is funded. And as part of that funding, are you teaching? If you have a fellowship, you don't have to teach. If you don't, and you're a TA, you have to teach. Okay. And do you have a fellowship or a teaching assistant? I have a TA. I'm a TA. So what classes are you teaching? Um, creative writing for freshmen. Yeah. Yeah. How's it been? Tell me about it. Uh, fun. I mean, I love my students. Yeah. yeah. It's been so nice. I mean, I think the best thing, again, is maybe walking into the library and seeing them. And they're like, hey, Miss Chioma. Hey, Miss Chioma. Right? So it's um, it's fun. It's it's nice. And they really... they. Some of them have interest in writing and reading their stories, very innocent stories. Innocent in the sense that it hasn't been corrupted by political talks, political oh. viewpoints. Yes, so very innocent stories. You could just see the child telling you what it is to 
to be a child without thinking about left leanings and right leanings and conservatives and you know liberals and you know all, all that. So just innocent, dreamy stories about the weather, about the sun, about rain. So yes, that sounds inspiring. It is inspiring. And so, as part of that TA ship, when you're teaching the creative writing class, do you have some control over like what the students are reading and how the workshop is set up? Yeah. And so, have you been able to um, set up your workshops the way that Professor Wilkinson does? Of course, yes. And how do the students like that? They love it. You know, because they haven't, like I said, these kids are innocent. They haven't experienced the gag or that thing. They don't know about it. They don't, it's just, it's fun in the classroom, writing, discussing their stories. and They want to talk. They want to tell you what's going on. You know, Americans, I don't know how they train their kids, but they have opinions, very strong, beautiful opinions, right? So they just throw it around the class, bounce it off of each other, and it's also pretty and beautiful to listen to. So you're in your final year in the program, right? Yeah. So you're moving quickly towards that thesis. How are you doing? How does it feel? How's the thesis going? I'm looking forward to it. It's coming up well because um, so I am expected to submit like eight short stories. And we're almost there. It's, it can be tasking, right? Or I mean, it's writing and it's what I love to do. Those are some days you want to bend it so well, you know, so it has to go well. Because you know one thing about this is, of course, it has to have a unifying theme. So anything, you're not just writing about anything. You're writing about something that is in line with what you're working. There's a sense of cohesion, right? And when the cohesion is not there, that means the story is not working. You have to go all over again and start all over again. Sometimes you get under the bed and you cry, but then you get up and then you do it again till it shapes up. Well, I've loved all of the stories of yours that I've read so far, and I can't wait to read the rest of them. And it's been wonderful talking to you. And before we go, I want to give you the last word. And the question that I always ask is, what's one thing that you think the program does really well? And what's one thing that you think the program could improve on? Right now, I don't know about tomorrow, but right now it's a black-led faculty. Hmm? The director is a black man, Professor Frank X. Walker. Then my professors, Damaris Hills, um, Crystal Wilkinson, you know, and they are all kind. What It's not doing well. Currently, there are about 11 writers in my class um, with the first year and the second year combined together. And um, so there are three black women in the class, one Indian woman. There is no black man. So maybe if we can have a sense of diversity, inclusion, representation. So yeah, that's it. Archioma, I've really enjoyed just hearing you talk about your craft and your experience. And I've really enjoyed reading your stories. I'm just so glad that we found your stories and that you agreed to come and talk to us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.